Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Podcast One presents, this is a collect call from Sing Sing. My name is John J. Lennon. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. I'm also a contributor for Esquire magazine and The Marshall Project. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. Imagine trying to stay focused and talk about issues of substance with geeks slamming, prisoners screaming, and PAs blaring in the background. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. Uh, all well, I don't think anything usual applies right now, so uh, <laughs> let me just dispense with all the usual rejoinders and just say I hope everyone is uh, doing well through this. This is trying times. The Chinese curse is something I think of often, which is may you live in interesting times. <laughs> uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna do well with this, but it's not gonna be without uh, pain of all sorts, uh, economic and physical, for those people who actually get the infection. So we are recording this obviously in the shadow of the Corona outbreak. We are all quarantined away, and by Zoom, I have Dr. David Rabin. David, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, and uh, yeah, well, I just. So good to be here. And I'm a huge fan of you from my childhood. <laughs> oh my God. That's a, that's a big deal because you're, yeah, I'm about to geek out of all your training. So let me, let me, and it's a perfect time for us to be talking. Uh, hopefully people can gain something from our conversation for the time. So Dr. Rabin uh, has spent 14 years researching treatments to combat the negative effects of stress and on physical and mental health. And I don't know about everybody else, but I'm feeling it right now. He's a board certified psychiatrist. Also a PhD in neuroscience, where he's a translational neuroscientist and inventor, specializing in treatment of PTSD, depression, anxiety, substance use. We're going to talk a little bit later about his research with hallucinogens, which was the original reason I uh, sought out uh, Dr. Rabin to be a guest on the show. But with all that's going on in the world, and by the way, he's working with MAPS, Yale, and SC, and other other really uh, leading researchers on psychedelics and the use of MDMA and therapy, these sorts of things, we'll talk about it. But right now it is the, it's the Apollo and wearable technology that uses neuroscience of touch and vibration to combat the negative effects of stress. The website is ApolloNeuro.com. Apollo Twitter is at Apollo HRV. Is that about summarize it? That sums it up, Dr. Drew. All right. So let's talk about stress. Let's talk about anxiety. I spent half my day talking people off the ledge. It is a, a stressful time. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think this is one of the most stressful times um, that we've had in the last uh, few decades. I think that it's important to acknowledge that it's important to acknowledge uh, what that stress does to us. Um, it's, you know, it, it increases our heart rate. It increases our breathing rate. Um, it makes us sweat more. It makes us, our thoughts move faster. And I think most importantly, that's that stress over time. Um, it, 
it impairs our body's ability to enter recovery states. So what I mean by this is, um, and this is really critical, I think, for all of us to understand, and I wish I had been taught this in medical school. This is something I figured out in my later reading and studies of the autonomic nervous system, which is the balance of the stress and the, the threat and the safety response system. Um, and basically, the sympathetic system is responsible for helping us maintain survival in situations that require fight, flight, or freeze responses to get to a place of safety when we're under acute survival threat. Um, uh, many of us feel that way right now. We feel like we're under a survival threat that we have to constantly protect ourselves and be hyper vigilant to anything around us that could possibly result in us getting sick. And this, what this does is it shuts down our recovery response system, which requires safety to activate. This is the system that's responsible for recovery, sleep, creativity, reproduction, digestion, um, empathy, all of these things that our bodies do that make our lives enjoyable and rewarding and fun. Um, and so what happens is it's up to us to remind ourselves in as many ways as possible. Um, one of the best ways is breathwork training, meditation, yoga, mindfulness, um, biofeedback and things of this nature. Um, some other techniques include things like Apollo and psychedelics. Um, but ultimately, um, it's up to us to figure out how to build um, strategies that strengthen the balance in our bodies, uh, the balance in our minds between these two nervous systems to remind ourselves that we are safe. We're not in an acute survival threat. As scary as things are, we're actually okay. And we actually are in a place where we have time to spend with our families. It's something that who would have thought <laughs> that we would have, that would have right. happened, right? Everything's kind of slowing down. There's whole, there's many different ways to look at this situation. And I think that's what yeah. it's really about. Cole was calling it a forced Sabbath. It's like, yeah. forced, it's like we're forced to take a Sabbath and we, exactly. we've not been doing it all these years. Now we're going to have our, uh, pay our debt to the Sabbath for a few months. <laughs> well, it, although I, a couple things I, um, we have, uh, I start, I actually spoke to Stephen Porges and Alan Shore. Gary, if you can get me the, show numbers on those. They're out from behind the uh, paywall now, so you can listen to them. Uh, Stephen Porges, of course, the polyvagal theory and really elucidated some of the mechanisms whereby the parasympathetic system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system, gives us our freeze response and how it can be a problem sometimes, particularly for those of us that had trauma early on in childhood. And uh, and Dr. Alan Shore, again, the guy that uh, worked on this, one of the earliest research, well, co-leaders of the information of all this. Gary, do you have those numbers by chance? Oop, is Gary there? I lost <laughs> Gary. Well, in any event, uh, Sorry, those, those I, show... That, Sorry, yep. I am here. Alan Shore is episode 65, uh, possibly more, but I'm not. that's the first one I'm seeing. And, I think uh, that's, that was an important one. Okay, and then Porges was uh, 6390 and more recently 395. But back to the, the fourth Sabbath, it's actually part of the problem with uh, us spending a lot of time together is everybody is in that autonomic heightened state. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed actually in a time when we all should be coming together, I'm, I'm witnessing and I'm hearing about lots of irritability and conflicts just at the time when we should be you know, enjoying our time together. People are too geared up. Right. And, and that's, and that's sort of the, that's a threat pathway really taking hold. Right. And, and yep. so it's, it's up to us to, to remember that there are two, there are multiple different choices with the way we approach this threat. 
um, the way we're approaching it is with constant fear and hypervigilance. We're constantly overwhelmed and surrounded by overwhelming stimuli in the news, uh, people talking about people dying and, and the contagiousness of the, of the illness and all of these things are, are really scary to be surrounded by. And anybody hearing about that stuff all the time would be expected to be stressed and irritable. That's, that's right. not unusual. So it's important to remember that when we're surrounded by all that, that stuff, it's normal to feel afraid, scared, irritable. But I think the opportunity here is that is the opportunity to be grateful for recognizing that this could be so much worse and that this is hopefully just based on what we're hearing. This is hopefully just a warning sign for us to get our butts in gear and really start taking care of not only our health, but the health of our communities and the health of the world as a whole. Because what yeah. this is really a sign of is, the, as you said in some ways, right, it's a forced Sabbath. We've been neglecting uh, recovery. We've been neglecting our day of rest. Now it's also we've been neglecting our health. We've been neglecting the health of ourselves, our communities, and our, and our earth as a whole. And so, you know, I think I, and what I'm really hoping is this is a wake-up call to all of us to take a step back and say, what can we do and to be grateful for this time and to use it as best as possible to improve our health, to decrease our chances of getting sick, to build resilience, um, and to just, you know, really, you know, think, sec- think again about what we want out of our lives. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this today that I, I noticed uh, in, where, where are you? Where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from Monterey. California. Monterey. So I noticed in, in New York City today, I've got a lot of people I you know, know and love in the city. And it's, it, it's the population that's getting sick there is, are people that uh, are sort of chronically, we're making a, a big population of chronically ill people. And, and we, you know, sort of in these horrible living environments that maybe aren't even working and aren't certainly aren't exercising. And uh, don't have a lot of engagement and so aren't really feeling worthwhile about themselves and so aren't taking care of themselves. Boy, these people are getting sick now. Right. And uh, I, I don't know what we do about that because that's a population that's hard to get mobilized. That's a really tough problem. And I think, you know, it, it's not, there are no easy answers to that other yeah. than creating better education as much yeah. as we can. Um, and I think honestly, it's people like you and I and the healthcare, you know, the senior healthcare providers, the, the people who are in a lot of ways elders in our society nowadays, right? Yeah. That are yeah. the people who have the most education, that have the most authority, that can step up and say, you know, we understand how you got to where you got, and that's not your fault. But here's how you can get to a better place that you would rather be. Let's figure out where you would rather be. We're not going to tell you where you should be. Let's ask you, where would you rather be? Let's figure that out. Most of, most of these people that we're talking about are chronically ill would rather feel better most of the time. And yeah. so it's, and, and that's the practice of, I think, what we actually use in substance use disorders um, nowadays um, and for the last 30 years, which is motivational interviewing. It's helping to understand. It's really just empathy, helping to understand where somebody wants to go with their lives and then what helping them understand what they have to do to get there. And over time, as we start, you know, the brain is not as complicated as we make it out to be. It's really a practice makes perfect system. And the more we gradually practice uh, small habits and, and small positive changes, those lead to bigger positive changes. And over time, that practice makes perfect system kicks in and we start feeling a hell of a lot better 
pretty quick. And so Apollo is sort of a way to tap into that by helping people feel safe enough to make change. I think mm-hmm. part of the thing that we oftentimes forget is that threat and constant fear makes us afraid of everything, including change itself. And so how do we embrace recovery and embrace positive change in our lives when the, the constant threat makes us feel like we have to have tunnel vision on the same habits we've always had? And the literature echoes this. The scientific literature shows that without a doubt, it's always harder to make change in your life when you're stressed out. Um, it's harder yeah. to meditate when you already have a disorder. It's harder to learn to meditate if you already have a diagnosis of PTSD, right? And so yep. what, what Apollo and the way, reason we built Apollo um, for this purpose was if we could prime the body to feel safe and present and in the moment, I remind by sending a signal, just like um, somebody holding your hand on a bad, giving you a hug on a bad day that tells the brain or reminds the brain, hey, wait a minute, I'm safe enough right now to pay attention to the feeling of this gentle vibration on my leg or my arm. That means that I'm not actually going to die. (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. not actually under threat in this specific moment. And that's exactly the way that deep breathing works. When we take a deep breath intentionally, it instantly tells our brain as we pay attention to the feeling of air coming into our nose and down our, our, our windpipe and into our lungs that we have the time to pay attention to that feeling. And so we have to be safe enough to have the time to pay attention to that feeling. We can't be running from a lion in that moment. And so right. that instantly sends a, a sub, totally subconscious safety signal to the brain that every time we breathe or every time we practice soothing touch or empathic listening or any kind of soothing technique, it constantly it, it serves to retrain that pathway so that we feel safe in situations we used to feel threatened in. And over time, we start to be able to change more effectively. Does that make sense? I, I will, yeah, I want to get in the weeds and all this stuff. So I'm, I am guessing, so it seems like attentional mechanisms have a large role to play here. And I, I, Adam and I used to talk about habits, like two years ago, we started talking about habits and how there wasn't enough conversation about habits and how habits are formed and how habits are uh, sort of crystallized and you move from one habit to the next. So I want you to get into the weeds a little bit about that. But before we do, I, I'm interested in the, in the vibration. So I'm guessing we're activating the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex so we can start to feel felt in the insular cortex is that sort of the mechanisms you guys are activating so i can't tell you for sure because the device has metal in it and so we can't put it into a fmri machine but i can oh. tell i can tell you we've done eeg studies uh electroencephalogram uh-huh. um and we've done ekg and what we do is we have like um uh, a time sync functional neuroscience lab that we've done this work in. So we basic what that means in fancy terms, in less fancy terms, is it means we measure brain waves, we measure heart heart rate patterns through EKG, we measure respiratory patterns through a respiratory band, sweat responses, uh, pupillometry, eye movement and reactivity, and physical movement, and sometimes a couple other things, all in tandem, all at the same time when people are doing different tasks. And so it allows you to put together not just one one set of data, but a signature of what the body's doing in any given moment in response to positive stimuli, threat, um, stressful cognitive tasks, physical tasks, whatever it may be. And so what we perceive Apollo to be doing, and the, and the reason we think it works so well the way it does, is because I actually mapped out the touch pathway first, and my my work. Um, at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, it, starting in 2014, I was researching how 
what makes people stop ruminating? Um, and I was working with stop, this. Stop uh, what? Say it again. Oh, sorry. Stop, stop. stop ruminating. Ah. Um, brooding, brooding thoughts, negative yeah. intrusive thinking. And what was really interesting to me about that was that uh, my colleague who I worked with at that time, Dr. Greg Siegel at the University of Pittsburgh is a psychologist and cognitive neuroscientist who's very well read and well published. Um, and he actually discovered that rumination as a trait, something that ne these negative intrusive thoughts that many of us have, if you have them all the time, you are much less likely to recover from mental illness, particularly depression. And so I started researching, well, what stops rumination? I ruminate, right? We all do. What stops yeah. rumination better than anything else? Somebody giving you a hug <laughs> or yeah. walking into a room when you're having a bad day and that your favorite song is playing, right? That mm -hmm. kind of thing just radically changes perspective and attention away from the negative intrusive or the source of the negative intrusive thoughts um, to something in the environment that reminds us that we're safe enough. To, to calm down and be present in the moment. And so the pathway that that activates is actually the, in, seems to be the insula first, not the prefrontal yeah. cortex first. And so what we believe, and that, and that's the pathway of touch. It goes through um, a spinal column track called lamina one, which is, which was discovered by a number of folks, but was most well characterized by a neuroscientist named Bud Craig, who did some incredible work mapping out the pathway in, in uh, monkeys and primates and showed that this pathway specifically conveys lamina one in the spine, spinal column, emotional context of, of, of touch. And we basically sought out to, use, to, to figure out if, if touch activates this pathway in the way that Bud, is, that Bud Craig is saying in all of these incredible publications, can we create a technology that reliably activates that pathway, interrupts the rumination response by boosting sense signals of safety by sending these, you know, rhythm, rhythmic patterns, basically music that I compose from neuroscience for your skin instead of your ears. And will that remind the body that it's safe enough to start to enter a meditative state or effectively a deep breathing state or a calm, clear focus state? And that's effectively from all the literature that we read and everything that we put together that's effectively what we were able to do. We haven't shown, we haven't shown the exact brain locations that are turned on yet, but it works just like human touch. And that's the way human touch works is it's, it goes to the emotional insula first, then from the insula, it block, it inhibits amygdala activity that's overreactive to fear and threat. Um, and then it's, it activates the prefrontal cortex, pre, pre, the prefrontal cortex and the frontal cortex that is responsible for that sense of strengthening and identity and agency and autonomy that helps us make better decisions in that situation. So uh, if anybody is interested in Bud Craig, uh, and this is not for the faint of heart, he wrote a <laughs> book called How, How Do You Feel? An Interceptive Moment with Your Neurobiological Self, where he really maps out all these, these ideas. And uh, I, I was uh, recommended this book by... Uh, Gary, help me. I'm blanking on the name of the neuroscientist, uh, uh, physician, a doctor that I geek out over. Uh, we've had in here with Sean Carroll. Can you help me? I'm trying to look it up. Oh, I, this, isn't, this isn't sparking. You know what I'm talking about. I've had her in here twice. She is also a musician. She's oh, an Indris Viscontis. Indris, Indris Viscontis. Uh, Indris recommended uh, Bud stuff to me, and I ran to some articles that she sent me, and then I got the book. This is not for the faint of heart. This is very difficult neuroscience, but man, is it impressive. And the fact that the insula was 
crossed over with the spinothalamic tract and uh, the lamina one was really surprising to me. And do you have a, a philosophical interpretation of what it is about feeling and touch? You know, I guess it's interoceptive feeling and feeling in the sense of our skin and our our proprioceptive system. It's all feeling, right? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I also thought that was fascinating, and I'm so glad that you're familiar with that literature because so few people are. Um, and I know I, I was. It, never- it, it, I, I knew it, the reason I ran to it is I had an instinct from the pain and addiction world that we were not paying enough attention to the inflow cortex. I just knew yeah. that was the answer, and and uh, she directed me in this direction. And I was up oh, there. It is there. It is. That's what I've been waiting for for about ten yeah. years. Yeah, so. I lo- yeah, I love it. That's exactly what drove me into this into this area of the brain. And so, interestingly, um, I think what where I sort of answered found the answers to my questions was looking at the evolutionary neurobiology of emotion. So, so tell me more. Oh, this so, is fantastic. I'm sorry, everybody. If you're not as geeked out as I am, please tell me more. So I think the I so it's basically that you know going back through ancient primates if you, you know, from humans all the way down, one of the major things that we see changing in the brain, two of the major things I should say, are uh, the, the structure of the cortex. So the cortex is that outer like five or six layers of the brain that is really responsible for storing all of our memories and experiences over the course of our lives. It's incredibly complex in and, humans. And, and thinking and reasoning and all that. And we right. have a layer, we have a middle layer that I kind of perceive as an integrative layer that the great apes don't have. Right. Uh, and I think you're referring to the colostrum. Yep. Um, so it's another, another area that was actually, I think, of the brain that's very, very hard to see. It was discovered, I think, by Christoph Koch and Francis Crick, um, oh, interesting. And, who worked with Eric Kandel. Um, who Eric Kandel discovered the mechanism of learning and memory for which he won the Nobel and, Prize and, in 2002. Yeah, right. At, at the synaptic level, he, he is, he's got some great books out there too. Right. And so I think what's really fascinating, so maybe taking a step back, what's really fascinating about the evolutionary, evolutionary neurobiology to me starts with Eric Kandel's work because Eric Kandel decided to go back and say, all right, if we're going to figure out learning and memory, let's go back really far first and see if other animals, even invertebrates like ancient sea snails that are 300 million years old, make memories in similar ways and respond to threat and safety signals in similar ways to humans. And ultimately, that's what he found. And that that basically the way that an aplesia, uh, 300 million year old sea snails neurons function um, to, to grow in response and change in response to threat and neutral and um, different kinds of positive stimuli are relatively the same as the way that we do it. Some of the neurotransmitters work slightly differently in snails and in us, but overwhelmingly the functioning of the neurons is the same. And the, and sorry, go ahead. You there? No, it wasn't me. Go ahead. Keep going. Oh. Um, and so, and, and so taking that, you know, one step forward, right. That, what that shows us is, you know, may, we're special as humans, but we're not that special. Our brains maybe work in a way that's more similar than we think. Um, fear, the way we learn fear, the way we learn to respond to positive things in our environment and neutral experiences in our environment is the same as the way that most animals do. And so that part, it's important to recognize the, and acknowledge the similarities as much as it is the differences. So then we move to the differences, and the differences are the, the colostrum, the, um, 
the uh, thick, the hugely thick cortex that's fully developed in humans, the um, emotional system, right? The insula. And, And so what's really interesting is as you map out the growth of the insula over time, and by time, I mean, from starting with ancient ancient apes and and um, reptiles all the way through um, great apes and bonobos and then to humans and children and all the way through adult humans, what we actually see is that the insula grows significantly. The the insula being the what we call the limbic cortex, the entire emotional cortex, and there are some other parts of it too. Um, but it's again part of this what we call the cortical structures of the brain that are essential to identity. And the insula expands into three layers that are relatively the same in great apes and bonobos as they are in humans, and also Mm. very similar in animals that are more advanced that have community in their lives, like dolphins, elephants, um, and animals that we tend to think of as having more human characteristics in their communities, more selfless characteristics. And so what's really interesting is it splits into three layers, and these layers are effectively... They, they get bigger and bigger as you get closer into humans and older humans, they're the biggest, but ultimately um, they, you can watch their growth progression over time. And, and, and Bud, Bud Craig talks about some of this in his work. And the three layers are incredibly interesting. The first layer is the posterior insula, which is responsible for in, uh, I hope I'm getting this right. Cause it's been a while. Um, interoception feelings of our body physically. Right. So when you feel your right. heart, so we say I've got a, when I, when we say I have a gut feeling, it is registered in the insular cortex. Exactly. And that was, I thought, one of the coolest parts about Bud's work yeah. um, is basically saying, hey, gut feelings are real, guys. Like, let's pay attention yeah. to this. There's a neurobiology here. It's interoception and it's registered in the posterior insula. Then the second layer, the middle layer, um, is responsible for introspection. So it's looking on, looking inside ourselves, sort of at ourselves more metaphysically, not the physical body, but how we think, how we feel and why, um, and doing deep dives on our, on ourselves. And then the third layer is the anterior insula and the anterior insula is possibly at least for me, the most interesting because the anterior insula is responsible for empathy and this, and it shows us that empathy is not something that is like, it's not something that people are not capable of. Some people think I cannot be empathetic. Well, too bad, buddy. It's literally uh-huh. hardwired into your brain. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. Even even psychopaths have that? They still have it. They just haven't practiced it. You know, it's really again, it's that's where the Eric Kandel side comes in, right? So it's about what are we practicing? If we don't, you know, you remember the saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is how the brain works. If you don't work out your muscles, if you don't train your brain, your memory, your emote, your emotionality, your sensitivity, your empathy, as much as we train the parts of our brain that our society tells us we care about that are focused on productivity, if we don't focus on the other stuff then we forget that it's there and eventually it just kind of becomes dormant. It's always there though, because it's literally represented physically hardwired into parts of our brains. Some of us feel like we cannot feel our bodies. Well, that's just because you haven't practiced it. It just takes time and practice to get us back to that state. So again, that's part of why we created Apollo was that if you can provide somebody with something that can tap into that system from what we call the bottom up from the body first, then you prime the body for change, uh, and then the mind follows. 
And so, you know, the, the, you know, what uh, Dr. Damasio calls Descartes' error, that we made a mind-body dualism is fundamentally flawed, that the, the, the brain is not just embedded in a body, it has an autonomic nervous system that's also in, embedded in the body, feeding it information. So in a real sense, it's, it's you know, the human mind is a brain body. Exactly. And I think one of the most fundamental parts of, you know, we were talking about what can we do now, right? Um, especially yeah. for people who are stuck in apartments or who are stuck really struggling. Um, what can we do now is we can recognize that one of the most fundamental things that is causing us what we call dis-ease or discomfort or um, symptoms of any kind is the fact that we deny the, the inherent intricate connections between the mind and the body. It's one of the mm. most fundamental self-deceptions, which leads to a self-misunderstanding and sometimes for some people, self-hatred, self-avoidance, you know, all of these things that, that prevent us from prioritizing going inside ourselves to figure out what are we really capable of? You know, who are we really? Um, we have to be curious. We have to allow that curiosity to, um, to be nurtured within ourselves by, you know, reminding ourselves that it's just us, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is our opportunity. Any opportunity is our, it's like an opportunity for us to be grateful for making it to this moment and then using that energy to help us, you know, make the most of that moment in that moment. As Ram Dass says, be here now. Yeah, right. Be here now is, is a famous book by Ram Dass. And, and you know, just back to the insular cortex again, there's another interesting aspect to the front to back or anterior to posterior structure is that in our you know, I think a lot of people know that on our cortex, we have these essentially homunculi, these little representations of our body along the surface of our cortex for both motor, motor and sensory uh, function on the opposite side of our body. But we have something similar, apparently, in the insula where there's little homunculi, but they're, they're much, but they're much vaguer mm -hmm. and they go from vague to more vivid, according to Bud. Uh, do you make anything? I don't know what to make of that. It's just fascinating to me. It's just like there's, there's vague feelings and then there are feelings that are more vividly located in our body. Is it just, that's just how we're constructed? Well, that's a really good question, Dr. Drew. Uh, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I could, I would hypothesize from, from reading. I, you know, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's just evolution. It's well, just the, the, probably the more the clearer stuff is just the more evolved stuff, and we don't cast off old evolutionary mechanisms. We just build stuff on top of them. So I I think that is a very valid hypothesis. I think that there is a second hypothesis which is equally valid, which is that the degree to which an experience is meaningful directly influences how in, in, intensely or how uh, tightly it's encoded into our memory. And when we're talking about emotionality or emotional content of experiences, in a lot of ways, the emotional content is that is that other dimension that we oftentimes forget about or ignore that really is what adds profound meaning to our experiences in our lives. And so I think that, and, and I think going, actually this ties into psychedelic um, work, which is that, um, I don't know if you know Franz Wollenweider, um, but Dr. Volenweider is one of the leading researchers on um, psilocybin and LSD and the mechanism of these in the brain. 
And I want to, I want to get into that now. So perfect transition. Yeah. And, and so I think one thing that's been really interesting that also ties back into the, our study of mental health in Western, in general, Western medicine is serotonin and the serotonin receptor system. And in psychedelics, one of the major serotonin receptors that has become uh, a prominent, um, a prominent interest, I should say, is the 5-HT2A receptor. Part of the yeah. reason why this receptor is so interesting is because it was found several years ago that this receptor is the receptor that is bound by LSD and um, MDMA and psilocybin by uh, Franz Wallenweider and some other scientists. Um, I believe all of them, I think, were in Europe. And what's even more fascinating is Franz Wallenweider took it a step further. I think it was in 2017. And he said, if all of these... Uh, I want to. He says, "I want to know what the cascade is. I want to know what receptors are activated first. Maybe there's one receptor that is. We know that dopamine's secreted or increased by psychedelic medicine um, and powerful positive experiences. We know that lots of neurotransmitters change when people have these psychedelic, um, you know, mystical, profound, transformative experiences. What if there's one neurotransmitter receptor that's at the top of that chain that activates a downstream cascade that turns all the other stuff on. So he thought, if we know LSD and psilocybin and MDMA bind 5-HT2A, let's just block 5-HT2A in people. So he gave people in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled experiment um, LSD and psilocybin and also catanserin or placebo. And catanserin is an orally active uh, chemical that doesn't really have any effects other than it blocks 5-HT2A. And what's Hmm. so interesting is that people who took catanserin and LSD or catanserin and uh, psilocybin, and importantly, these people did not know they were taking catanserin, these people had a completely attenuated or blocked shift in meaning from the experience of taking the psychedelic medicine. And basically, when that block in meaning changed, they didn't experience any strange experience at all. They had no, as we say, altered state of consciousness from just blocking one receptor. Hmm. And and so what's so fascinating about that is, is that when you really, getting back to a reductionist perspective, when you really look at what makes a psychedelic experience powerful, it's the emotional meaningfulness of that experience and how much of it is sort of brought forth or manifested in that state of safety um, that is curated by ideally a therapist or a clinical team um, and, or in some cases a shaman. And so that safe experience allows these meaningful emotional things to come up. And if we don't perceive, if we don't allow our brains to perceive a shift in meaning, then effectively the entire psychedelic paranormal or altered state experience is completely eliminated. So why that's so interesting is because meaning is now located to one receptor. And the way that we know, the way that we know that is because SSRIs have a very interesting side effect. So SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They're used frequently and prescribed for depression and anxiety. Um, They are one of the most overprescribed drugs in the U S And Mm -hmm. what is really unfortunate about them is that as a side effect, an unintended side effect of taking them, they cause a feelings of numbness. And the most common representation of feelings of numbness 
is inability to orgasm or achieve peak pleasure states. So not only do they numb us to negative emotions, which is what we're trying to do by giving them to people, prescribing them to people who have severe depression or anxiety, but they also tend to numb us to positive emotions. They're non-selective. And how do they work? Well, they flood the serotonin receptors in our brains and really our whole bodies. But for the purposes of depression and anxiety in our brains, they flood the receptors and they increase the amount of serotonin such that the receptor is always bound. But psychedelics don't do that. Psychedelics act by creating a burst of activity at that receptor, which creates a profound and radically meaningful and transformative experience that could be positive or negative by increasing. It's literally going from meaninglessness or blunted meaning to excessive meaning. Everything's meaningful. Ecstatic meaning. Ecstatic meaning. The flower is meaning. I've never seen the flower look. I've never felt the flower to look like that before. Right. And so, and so, but why is that important? It's important because it shows us that the amount of meaningfulness of an experience is tied to this one receptor and is modifiable, right? Mm. So by changing oh. the way that we, that we perceive an experience, for example, by perceiving a challenge with gratitude, as some as an opportunity to grow from rather than why me all of a sudden that challenge takes on entirely new meaning which allows us to become that much closer to achieving a fuller version of ourselves through the process of self-growth by overcoming that challenge talk, talk more about uh how that's used I'm, I'm assuming you're making the case for a therapeutic context where it's used some some sort of meaning making with another person right uh for the, for that strategy i just described Yes. Um, or yeah, is it I, really just by itself? Just you're saying just just as a pharmacological event. That's all that's needed. I mean, I I think that the most promising uh, thing that we can take from all of this body of literature is that we can do it by ourselves um, by bringing ourselves into a present mind-body balanced homeostatic state, whether it's through the practice of breath work, meditation you know, as we talked about earlier, mindfulness, yoga, biofeedback, um, you know, psychedelics, Apollo, whatever it may be used in the proper way. Um, we have the ability to access these states of heightened meaning in, in and of ourselves, just by facilitate creating or curating situations that are maximally safe to allow us to be present in the moment without worry. Mm. And, and so, does it help to have people around? Absolutely. Does it help to have people around that are not people that you're comfortable with? No. Right. Mm -hmm. So in this particular juncture in, in human history, we're at a very strange time because the most powerful evolutionary way that we express safety to one another is touching and hugs. And now we're self-isolating. Yeah. And so how do we reconcile that? It comes out as irritability right? Going back right. to what you were yeah. mentioning earlier. So I think yes. a, a big part of this is, I think, as you said, for Sabbath, it's forcing us into a day of self-reflection or three months of self-reflection where this is an opportunity to be grateful for what we have and to figure out how to make sure this never happens again. <laughs> yeah. Talk, talk a little more about your research with psychedelics and where you think this is all going. So uh, my research is ongoing presently. Um, 
I think going back to what we were talking about earlier with uh, Eric Kandel's work in emotional learning, um, I think uh, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who, who is a, um, an incredible researcher at Mount Sinai in the Bronx VA, um, took things a, a, another step further um, from understanding just how neuron, neuron structures and synapses change as we grow and learn. And she actually started looking at markers on the DNA uh, that are called epigenetics. So um, genetics, DNA, means tends to mean in the DNA when we talk about it. It means in the A, C, Ts, and Gs that are literally the same in every single cell in our entire body, except in our sperm and egg cells for the most part. Um, however, how, if all the DNA and all the genetic code in all of our cells is the same, pretty much, how does a skin cell know to be different from a brain cell? And the way that the skin cell knows to be different from a brain cell is there are little markings on the DNA that tell the skin, hey, skin, your skin, don't make brain proteins. And it tells the brain that, hey, your brain and you're this specific part of the brain, don't make skin proteins or any other proteins that don't make sense for where you're located in, your, in the brain or in the body. So and all, DNA regulation. Right. Through epigenetics on the DNA, yeah. markers on the DNA. Yeah. And so what's really fascinating that Rachel found that others have found, have um, echoed in the, in the scientific sphere since then is that she found that a lot of hints that trauma causes changes to stress and reward response genes that pass on over time, not only pass on over time over the course of our lives, but pass on over the time over generations in that ancestors of people or sorry, ancestors of people who were in the Holocaust, their children and great-grandchildren and grandchildren, as far as they went in the study, um, they expressed similar, the same epigenetic markings that correlated with um, PTSD as their parents who were traumatized. And so then the next step was, hey, let's try this. Let's explore this in a causal model in mice. And they traumatized mice at a very young age. And then they bred those mice and they watched the epigenetic uh, DNA expression marking patterns. And they found that without a doubt, there were significant changes to stress and reward response gene expression that occurred with that first trauma at a young age that were passed on for up to four generations of safe living before they were eventually, or sorry, at least four generations of safe living before they were eventually eliminated from the DNA. So did they ever raise these uh, the the subsequent generations with the epigenetic markers outside of their uh, genomic pool? In other words, because you know we we always thought about G, you know, the, one of the the things about intergenerational transmission of trauma is that something about the parent is emotionally transmitted or somehow transmitted through the caretaking. Did they right. do any control like that? You know, that's a great question. I would have to go back and look. Um, but I, but, but regardless, I think it is more realistic to not do that because that is not representative of what we experience in our lives. Typically in our, in our lives, um, when we're traumatized and we haven't resolved our trauma, we do traumatize our children. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, That's right. and, and so I think what's interesting in mice is in mice, you can actually, you can look at all these different time points because, Mice don't have the same rights in our society that human do, humans do. And you can section their brains and take samples of DNA over the course of, you know, all these different time points in their lives and see that, you know, when a mouse is born, a, a young mouse is born from a traumatized parent, um, that baby mouse before it has been exposed to negative behavior from the parents still has those same or similar changes. 
And so I think what's most important about all of this is that trauma and a lot of the symptoms that we're experiencing as a result of, that we experience as a result of trauma are not permanent. What this is showing us is that epigenetics, if, if these changes are in the epigenetic code, that's actually a really good sign because epigenetics are modifiable by things that happen in our lives. If trauma, which can be sort of defined in a reductionist way as, you know, powerful, negative, intense, meaningful experiences, one or many, uh, and that causes epigenetic changes that result in the clinical expression of things like PTSD, depression, and anxiety. And then we see people going through one to three extremely intense, meaningful, positive experiences with psychedelics or with amazing therapists and their symptoms are within with just three doses of medicine and a bunch of psychotherapy, basically gone for years afterwards. That could only be the case if it was acting on the same part of the, of the genome. And so, because that's the only thing that lasts in our bodies for years and years and years, and then passes on to our offspring. So I think what we're exploring right now, that's very exciting with maps and and then folks at Yale and, and USC and, and um, uh, Dr. Yehuda is we're looking, what we're looking at is can psychedelic medicine used in the proper way actually reverse the epigenetic changes that result from trauma and can we then use that study to explain how the, the sort of the, the interface between science and spirituality, you know, where, where is, where does healing occur? Healing occurs by allowing ourselves to feel safe enough to heal. And when we feel safe yeah. enough to heal, that's when the recovery nervous system turns on. That's where the parasympathetic system gets resources diverted toward it to facilitate hopefully what we will see as epigenetic remodeling that restores recovery. And so we're actually yeah, conducting, and we're conducting a study with MAPS participants in the phase three trial right now. And, and I suspect you're aware too, that there's the whole world of interpersonal neuropsychology uses the same kinds of concepts about a, a safe frame for intersubjective exchange as the fundamental building block or the, the process necessary to heal. Absolutely. And I am also an, an MDMA, a MAPS MDMA trained psychotherapist, and I'm also a ketamine trained psychotherapist. And I went through an enormous amount of psychotherapy training in my own training. And I can tell you that the single most important thing through all of those practices, the single theme that is the biggest, most responsible theme that contributes to healing and meaningful healing is safety, emotional, mental, physical, financial, and legal safety, holistic, complete safety. And sometimes we're not always able to provide that to people, but if we always set that as a pri- as a top priority, then it just maximizes the likelihood that we'll be able to facilitate healing experiences for ourselves and for others. The last couple of things I want to do is I want to talk about habits and how people should approach habits and then give some basic sort of guidelines for what we should be doing in the face of our quarantine. So habits are going back to, again, um, not to belabor the work, but I think this just shows how important Eric Kendall's work is and why he won the Nobel Prize, is habits are things that we practice intentionally or unintentionally in our lives. And they can be anything. It can literally be a thought of, I am worthless. And if you think I am worthless every day for 40 years, you're probably going to get really, really good at feeling worthless. 
And that's not necessary. It's not your fault. Usually what happens is we feel worthless or we feel guilty or shamed of ourselves or uh, any number of negative experiences because we had something bad happen to us or something traumatizing happened to us and we didn't have adequate support afterwards. And that the support after a trauma is invariably the single most important critical time for helping prevent the downstream negative effects of that trauma becoming mental or, you know, expressing symptoms of mental illness. And so um, habits can be negative or positive, right? And I think the idea that we can approach this with is if habits are just practice, practicing anything in our lives, and we only have so much time uh, on the face of this earth, why not spend that time practicing things that make us feel good? Not necessarily just things that make us feel good in the moment, but things that have the ability to make us feel good in the moment and in the long run. So one of the examples I really like to use with my patients um, is the example of the practice of gratitude. It's very easy to practice feeling crappy when something bad happens uh, or to practice saying, why me when something bad happens? The other, uh, or when you get angry or frustrated, the other opportunity is say, hold, take, you know, take a pause, take a breath and say, I'm grateful for the opportunity to take a breath in this moment, which gives you a little more pause feeling and feelings of safety through the breath pathway, signaling safety to the brain. You have time to take a breath. Same thing happens with Apollo. And then this gives us an opportunity to be grateful for, to consider feeling grateful for the anger, for the frustration, for the feelings of negativity as an opportunity to figure out how to not feel that way anymore in a sustainable way, in a way that allows us to continue to get, to get better and to feel that negativity, ideally less. And so in a weird way, this, this epidemic is an opportunity for that kind of thinking shift. That's exactly right. And, and that's exactly how we need to think about this. You know, I just talked to somebody today who told me that he has made such radical change since in the last few weeks since quarantine that he's spent the last 10 days having the best 10 days of his life, despite the fact that he feels like the world is falling apart around him. And I thought that was one of the most powerful things that I've heard in a while because I'm even struggling to do that right now. But the, yeah. and, and so are many of us, but I think that just shows how powerful we are. You know, we really do have the ability to optimize the way we feel and to, and to reframe or change the way we feel and the way we perceive the meaningfulness of an experience at any moment. And that's, and that hope, that belief, that knowing that we can do that, that we have agency is exactly what makes us feel better at times where we feel like literally nothing is within our control anymore. There, there was something you, you said, though, that really struck me. It's, it's uh, I'm having a novel thought slash experience as a result of it, which was taking gratitude down to the most basic, I, I guess, experiences that you can find gratitude for, including the capacity for a deep breath. That, to mm-hmm. me, is a really striking thought. I know. And I wish somebody had taught me that when I was like, (laughs) you know, like when, when you, when you try to learn that as an adult, it's like, oh boy. (laughs) But, you know, we can be teaching this to our kids right now. You know, anybody who's trapped at home with your kids, if you want something that's going to make your lives better, teach your kids how to breathe, teach your kids how to practice gratitude, forgiveness, 
um, self-compassion and self-love. You know, self-compassion is also one of the most powerful tools that we have access to. That's, and of course, I focus on these tools because they're free and they're things that anybody can do at any time. Um, and self-compassion is one of the things that for us is sometimes hard to understand. But what it really means is patience to allow things to unfold as they will. Understanding that we've been practicing being the way we are for a really long time. So it's not going to change overnight. So let's be patient for allowing things to unfold as they will, which allows us to spend more time being grateful for the actual process, not just the process as an ends to a, a means to an end. Well, listen, I appreciate you spending some time with us and, and I suspect I'm going to have to have you back because this is all stuff that I could go on all day, but we could just, we could just, uh, we, we surveyed, um, four or five different topics, each of which I feel like we could dedic easily dedicate a podcast to. So I, I may make you do that. So uh, stand I, would, by. I, I, I would love to. I really, I really appreciate the conversation and I really respect your work and what you do, what you've been doing for the community. So thank you. Well, it's very kind of you to say, but, but the stuff you're doing is, is I've been fascinated with this stuff since college and I've sort of kept my eye carefully on it. And you can't help but be thinking about these things when you work with drug addicts, when you see, brains that aren't working normally, you get a, a sense of, it's like everything in, in medicine where you see the, you, you get exposed to pathologies, you're able to figure out what normal function is all about. And exactly. The brain is the same way. And the, you guys are on the threshold of really important stuff. So, um, I, I just, I just want to stay on top of it. I want, I want to be able to refer people to, uh, psychedelic psychotherapies. Cause I get questions, questions about that all the time with people with severe chronic PTSD and, you know, sort of stuck states. Do you mm -hmm. want to give out a, is there a general website for that kind of thing? And people are looking for those kinds of treatments? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, having, knowing that what the, the safe resources are is a critical piece of all this. Um, my, my personal website is drdave.io. Um, and if you reach out to me uh, on that website, I will happily refer you uh, to anyone who could provide that treatment in a safe way. Uh, in some cases I can provide it myself um, just depending on on the on the individual case and um, what's needed, um, and you can also find out more about um, non drug alternatives at apolloneuroscience.com uh, or apolloneuro.com. Um, but I think going back to psychedelics just for a second because it's so important to have resources for all this stuff. Um, some very good friends of mine are that I've actually become close to um, recently because we're so aligned on the topic of education about psychedelic medicines for the world because of their powerful uh, therapeutic and healing potential when used properly. Um, uh, Jackie Stang has started and, and uh, Matt Stang have started the Meet Delic, which is a way for anyone in the community to access um, reliable information about psychedelics, how to get access to treatments, places to um, experience these medicines in a safe context, um, and ideally a legal context. And so, um, because these resources are few and far between and they are, I'm, I'll be speaking at their conference later in the year called meet Delic. And this is a, you know, this is, I think the start of an incredible movement of education that is bringing what, all this hard work that maps has done to, to the public. It's this process of translation, which we continue to go through and iterate over time, a process that, you know, you, Dr. Drew have been 
we're so grateful for translating complex topics for uh, the public. And um, and another event um, for psychedelic education is coming up is Bicycle Day, which is on August 19th, or, or sorry, April 19th, which is the, celebrating the day that Albert Hoffman discovered LSD, which was actually mm. found foundational in the development of almost all of our um, all of our uh, psychiatric medicine, particularly things like SSRIs in Western uh, medicine. So and the, um, and the bicycle day because he was experimenting and rode home on his bicycle and had a huge trip. Is that why it's bicycle day? Uh, yes. Yeah, so what happened was he always rode to and from work, and what happened? And LSD is a particularly interesting psychedelic molecule because not only is it extremely potent, it's more potent than any other known psychedelic. It also is transdermal. So it goes through the skin and he accidentally spilled some on his skin. And then not knowing that he had dosed himself enormously, he rode home on his bike and had the experience of his life. (laughs) And so that's that's what celebrated. And then he came back to the lab and said, I'm going to send this to all of my friends so they can tell me what they think. (laughs) And and by the way, there's a lot of end of life work with uh, psychedelics. There's all kinds of stuff we could talk about. So to stand by, I'm going to bring you back one of these days soon. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I in the meantime, uh, we appreciate you spending all time with us during these extraordinary times. And I hope everyone uh, got a ton out of this. I certainly did. And uh, we'll talk to you very soon, David. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Dr. Drew. Take care. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.